You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a money-making business by Alex Ferrari. For a free copy of the audiobook, head over to www.filmbizbook.com. Welcome to the Director Series Podcast, a show dedicated to deconstructing the work of some of cinema's most celebrated and influential film directors. I'm your host, Cameron Bile. Despite his triumphant return with Raging Bull, director Martin Scorsese was still not back in the way we tend to define the idea. Careers are long and treacherous, riding crests and troughs with no promise of safe harbor on the other side. He still felt artistically unsatisfied, and even entertained the idea of retiring from feature filmmaking to direct documentaries exclusively. Still, one more project loomed large on his directorial wish list, a kind of North Star he had spent the remainder of the 1980s feverishly pursuing. That project, based on The Last Temptation of Christ, Nikos Kazantzakis' revisionist take on the crucifixion, seemed to hold the promise of fulfillment he had been yearning for, and towards that end he approached his frequent collaborator Robert De Niro to play the eponymous Son of God. When the subject matter proved a touch too risque for De Niro's tastes, no small feat, the actor offered the counterproposal of making a comedy together. He reminded Scorsese of a project he had brought him all the way back in 1974, a story by film critic Paul D. Zimmerman titled The King of Comedy, about a delusional stand-up wannabe kidnapping his late-night talk show idol in a bid to score his big debut. Scorsese had passed then, unable to really connect with the material. However, the roller coaster years that followed Taxi Driver had given him a lifetime's worth of insights into celebrity and the trappings of fame. Suddenly, the premise of The King of Comedy cut straight home. That fellow director Michael Cimino was attached to the film for a period, only to fall out when production on Heaven's Gate went over schedule, speaks to the king of comedy as a film slightly behind its time. Heaven's Gate's notorious reputation as the film that summarily ended the new Hollywood era in one fell swoop points to the sweeping change in audience trends after the arrival of the 1980s. Even the power of Scorsese and De Niro's creative partnership, so integral to the legacy of 70s American cinema, was undeniably waning in the shadow of the Ronald Reagan era. The explosive chemistry that propelled works like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull to ever loftier heights seemed to hit a wall with the king of comedy, cratering their ascendant momentum to a seven-year standstill. Though it could be said that the king of comedy was simply too late to the party, there's a stronger argument that it was actually far ahead of its time. From the standpoint of a culture obsessed with the status of celebrity and the self-delusions of the influencer economy, the King of Comedy has undergone something of a critical reappraisal as a disturbingly prescient work, and an underrated gem in Scorsese's celebrated body of work. We just don't think you're ready yet. Don't think I'm ready. We just don't feel that right now you're right for Jerry. Right for Jerry. Mm-hmm. Some of the material, some of it is good. Yes. But some of it, some of the one-liners, for instance, are not very strong. They're not very strong. In other words, you didn't like some of the jokes. Is that it? That's right. Good. Scorsese's first comedy doesn't try so much for hearty belly laughs as it does for the nervous laughter elicited in awkward situations we'd rather escape. De Niro's Rupert Pupkin is an aspiring comedian, emphasis on aspiring. 
currently living in his mother's basement in an outer borough of New York City. He's completely preoccupied, one might say obsessed, with meeting his idol, a Johnny Carson-type late-night show host played by Jerry Lewis and named Jerry Langford. One night, he finally succeeds by saving Jerry from the other rabid fans outside the stage door, throwing himself into the getaway limousine as it speeds away. Finally face-to-face with his idol, he does what most desperate wannabes do. He immediately pitches his act. Jerry brushes Rupert off politely. He tells him to call his assistant and set up an appointment, assuming that Rupert will never actually follow up. Much to the chagrin of Jerry and his employees, Rupert dutifully and repeatedly shows up to Jerry's office until security has to throw him out of the building. Undeterred by this minor setback, Rupert continues his bid for Jerry's attention, indulging in fantasies wherein he and Jerry are best friends. His daydreams grow increasingly more delusional, with Jerry praising Rupert's act as nothing short of revolutionary and inviting him out to his house in the Hamptons for the weekend. The extent of Rupert's disconnect from reality becomes painfully apparent to everyone around him when he actually shows up at Jerry's Hamptons house unannounced, feeling that his friendship with Jerry is slipping away, and by extension his chance for his big debut on Jerry's show, Rupert concocts a last-ditch scheme to launch his career by kidnapping Jerry and leveraging his hostage to achieve his own 15 minutes of fame. In more recent years, De Niro has tried to soften his tough guy image by appearing in broad, bright comedies like Meet the Parents, so one could see the king of comedy as a bridge between such roles and the hard-edged method performances that define his legacy. As Rupert Pupkin, De Niro excels at projecting a disturbingly needy and desperate vibe, the complete opposite of the aloof tough guys he played in his previous collaborations with Scorsese. This complete lack of machismo and posturing on De Niro's part results in an unforgettable performance that his director reportedly considers to be one of the best within their own work together. Like those other roles, De Niro was quite extensive in his preparations, watching stand-up comedy acts for months, and even going so far as to pursue his own stalkers and autograph hounds, interrogating them about their fascination with him. Despite the apparent fruits of their labor on display throughout, the king of comedy would stand as De Niro and Scorsese's last collaboration before the aforementioned seven-year hiatus, a development that Scorsese attributes to the story's uncomfortable nature and the difficulty in capturing the right energy required. Johnny Carson was the director's first choice to play Jerry Langford, and the entirety of the Rat Pack was reportedly considered before Jerry Lewis emerged as the right man to play the object of Pupkin's unhinged idolatry. Lewis essentially plays an exaggerated version of himself, leaning into an anecdotal reputation as something of a rich, egotistical prick. However, Lewis was reportedly rather deferential to his collaborators, encouraging Scorsese throughout the shoot and taking his more aggressive directions in stride, even when that involved hurling anti-Semitic epithets in an effort to draw out an angry response. Though the King of Comedy's primary narrative focus is on its male characters, their female counterparts aggressively carve out ample space for themselves. De Niro's then-wife, Diane Abbott, plays Rita, a bartender and a romantic interest for Rupert. Abbott is, for all intents and purposes, the straight character, giving a grounded performance that establishes necessary perspective for the delusional characters that populate the film. While she had cameos in a couple of Scorsese's films previously, most notably as a lounge singer in New York, New York, her performance in The King of Comedy allows for substantial screen time. Sandra Bernhardt plays Masha, a contentious friend of Rupert's and a fellow nutbag with a dangerous, unpredictable edge. Additionally, The King of Comedy features brief appearances by Scorsese's friends and family. Rupert! Are you crazy? Hey, What's hello, the matter Drew. with you? Yeah. Come on, People are sleeping. Lower it! Both of his parents make respective cameos, with Mother Catherine as Rupert's heard but not seen mother, and Father Charles as a patron at the bar. 
Scorsese's longtime writing partner, Mardik Martin, also makes an appearance at the same bar. And New York, New York's Liza Minnelli appears in cardboard cutout form in Rupert's basement apartment. Finally, Scorsese himself appears briefly as a television director for Jerry's show. The king of comedy greatly deviates from the established Scorsese look, that signature blend of grit, immediacy, and lurid color, opting instead for a straightforward, unadorned look inspired by silent cinema, particularly by Edwin S. Porter's 1903 film Life of an American Fireman. Working for the first time with cinematographer Fred Schuller, Scorsese emphasizes broad, even lighting, and wide compositions so as to better capture the physicality of the comedy. Taking further cues from the films of Emmerich Pressburger and Michael Powell, the King of Comedy makes no visual distinction between Pupkin's humdrum everyday existence and the ego-stroking delusions he indulges in. Indeed, Pupkin's fantasies often feel more real than reality itself. Scorsese and Schuller further diversify the texture of the 35mm film image with the scratchy, lo-fi aesthetic of television video from the period, evidenced in both the opening of the picture as well as Pupkin's big monologue. The King of Comedy also signals another major development of Scorsese's artistic signature, dovetailing with the rise of the Steadicam in the early 1980s. The film takes advantage of the Steadicam's ability to embark on sustained glides through space without the need for an unwieldy dolly track, manifest via extended charges down long Manhattan boulevards. The newfound nimbleness and dynamicism afforded by recent filmmaking advancements proved a major boon for Scorsese, who was racing against a looming director's guild strike and his own fragile health. Still recovering from his recent collapse at Telluride, Scorsese was understandably anxious about returning to set, but his producer Arnon Milchin devised a laid-back scheme in which a smaller-scale shoot would unfold over just 20 weeks, with the director only working from 4 to 7 p.m. each day. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. While there's few displays of swaggering masculinity no Catholic iconography, and no overt ruminations on the experience and heritage of Italian immigrants in America. The King of Comedy is nonetheless shot through with Scorsese's artistic signatures. In the absence of the gritty, shadow-laden ascetic that marked previous films, De Niro's presence and the chaotic Manhattan backdrop are left to serve as the primary surface indicators of his hand. Go deeper than that, deeper even than the presence of frequent collaborators like editor Thelma Schoonmaker and music producer Robbie Robertson, Further, beyond the blues-infused rock soundtrack boasting artists like B.B. King, Van Morrison, and Ray Charles, and one can still find traces of the idiosyncratic DNA that make up the archetypical Scorsese film. Though he may not look the part, the character of Rupert Pupkin is very much molded in the vein of the prototypical Scorsese protagonist. He may not be a thug or a miscreant, but he's most certainly a type of lowlife, dwelling haplessly at the bottom of the New York food chain. And just like those other Scorsese-leading men, he'll have to resort to illegal means if he's going to stand a decent chance of achieving his own version of the American dream. So soon after the success of Raging Bull, the King of Comedy's release would find Scorsese already backsliding into the realm of box office failure. Many audiences were turned off by the awkward, uncomfortable nature of the comedy on display, unable to understand how such a supposedly uncomfortable film could be nominated for the prestigious Palme d'Or of that year's Cannes Film Festival. As the years have passed, this style of cringing comedy has been harnessed to great success by shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm, with one episode even going so far as to push Scorsese himself in front of the camera. Subsequently, the king of comedy's cultural regard has also risen, 
proving eerily prescient while racking up an eclectic collection of high-profile fans and Steve Carell, Jack Black, and Akira Kurosawa, among others. Recent films like Todd Phillips' Joker have even publicized the major role that the King of Comedy played in their creation. In our media-saturated, celebrity-obsessed age, where anyone can become famous despite a lack of talent or conviction, it's not inconceivable to say that we've all got a little Rupert Pupkin inside of us. Until these rosier days, however, the Scorsese of the early 1980s would have to contend with the fact that he was barely keeping his head above water. An era of economic prosperity was about to begin, albeit one with little appetite for Scorsese's particular brand of visceral drama. The King of Comedy is a prime example of Scorsese's subsequent response, a vigorous, if meandering, bid to explore other milieus of cinema previously untouched by his hand, all while the guiding light of passion projects like The Last Temptation of Christ grew dimmer by the day. Thank you for listening to the Director Series. For a deeper dive into your favorite filmmakers, go to www.directorseries.net. The Director Series is made possible in large part by our generous supporters on Patreon. Please visit us at patreon.com backslash directorseries to see how your contribution enables the continued production of video essays and text articles on your favorite contemporary and classic film directors. Thank you.